Awesome. Okay. Hey, everybody. So welcome to the Darvis podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. Sumner on today. Uh, just this is going to be a thrilling conversation and she has a lot to offer. And I would probably say one of the most diverse backgrounds I've ever seen in my life from like how she is where she is today. So we're going to get into all that. But Dr. Sumner, so nice having you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, thanks, Craig. So just before we get started, uh, fun fact, um, I will be soon to be the third Dr. Sumner. So when you said it, I'm like, hmm, which one? Um, <laughs> both of my brothers are also, <laughs> well, one, my youngest brother will soon to be Dr. Sumner. Oh so I'm God. Dr. Chelsea. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Chelsea is fine. <laughs> <laughs> that is insane. It runs in the family. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, not that's too many, <laughs> there's not many people that you run across where they're like, well, actually, every one of my siblings is also a <laughs> doctor right. too that is just absolutely outrageous <laughs> that is so fantastic yeah but no thanks it's an honor to be here pleasure excited to talk with you today and uh you know sh- showcase and highlight a little bit of my journey and how i ended up where i am because you're right i do have a very very interesting background <laughs> yeah absolutely so you know just for the audience um chelsea is basically an influential individual at NVIDIA. So uh, healthcare AI startups lead at NVIDIA, which is, of course, everyone knows uh, through the Renee podcast as well, that uh, it's an AI company. It's a it's a hardware company. So uh, that's tech heavy. And that's the focus. But I'm looking at your LinkedIn, Chelsea, and it looks like you used to work at CVS on the pharmacy side. You have a <laughs> do you have a doctorate <laughs> in pharmacy? Um, so i how does that, where exactly, how does that lead into technology um, from having this background of uh, pharmaceutical studies and clinical research undergrad? And so I'm just, <laughs> I need to hear this from your mouth in terms of how this happened and how you ended up in tech through this journey of um what is traditionally not considered to be tech, right? Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. So um, you're going to take a journey with me where I'm going to date myself a little bit. Um, we're going we're gonna to travel back in time, not back to the future. We're going to go back <laughs> in time uh, a little bit over a decade ago. So uh, I actually, to give you context of how I ended up here, I uh, was introduced, introduced to pharmacy at 16. And when most kids are taking their summer vacations and either getting a job, or, you know, enjoying life. Yeah, I was in a lab. (laughs) I spent my eight to five in my junior and senior summers of high school doing analytical electrochemistry research in a program called North Carolina Project Seed. It's a phenomenal program in hindsight. It's probably the foundation as to why I am to the way I am today, um, in addition to like my parents. But uh, it was in a phenomenal program that exposed me to pharmacy. And I decided, okay, I'm going to be a pharmacist. Like I just made the decision. I'm going to be a pharmacist. They tell everyone, oh yeah, you're good at math and science. Be a doctor. Well, I didn't really want to be a physician. No offense to my physician friends. I love them dearly, but you're guessing on diagnosing and I like concrete problems. And so um, it was just an opportunity for me to 
also explore other STEM fields that weren't your traditional, you know, uh, physician, surgeon type of deal. And so pharmacy is a doctoral degree as well. Um, I have a doctorate of pharmacy degree, but before I got there, I actually got my undergraduate degree in clinical research. So there's probably a background there um, (laughs) to give you some context on that. I, like I said, knew I wanted to go to school to be a pharmacist and went in with the idea that I was going to do pharmaceutical sciences. I was already good in benchtop research. And so I was doing immunology research. And then I realized that I like people. Um, Sitting in a lab at 3 a.m. counting cells was not exactly my idea of a lot of fun. And so I got exposed to clinical research during my undergrad studies in the pharmacy school at Campbell University and fell in love with it. It was unique for multiple reasons, but particularly uh, I, as a Black woman, a Black African-American woman is how I identify. Um, Our community traditionally doesn't trust uh, not only the field of medicine, but specifically like the field of clinical research and like testing medicine in populations. So, of course, there's the Tuskegee experience, there's Henrietta Lacks, there's multiple instances as to why that is, but I knew that I could make a difference in talking to my community about the importance of clinical research um, and the importance of studying medications in our communities and the outcomes that can come from it. And then realize, oh, yeah, in order to run those studies, I've got to have a doctorate degree. So off to pharmacy school, I went. Uh, And so I ended up in pharmacy school. We can talk a little bit further about that, but that's at least how I ended up with the pharmacy background. And then um, I guess still there's a lot to talk about here. How did I end up into actually getting into tech? Right. Right. So (laughs) there's more. That's a huge jump, right? I mean, that's a major jump. And I think that um, a lot of people I can't. I actually can't imagine going through all of that schooling um, and what it takes to achieve something like that. And then, you know, and and ultimately, I'm sure it's not exactly switching gears, but on surface level, it definitely looks like it's a completely different discipline, right? And so what is that process? How, so what happened? What, what moved you from (laughs) the pharmaceutical world into, into the world of tech and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so we'll skip over to pharmacy, right? So now we're about five years into this journey. We're going a little bit into the future here. And I um, did a little bit of everything in pharmacy school because, again, I just think I'm I'm very much a person that loves the opportunity to explore my options. Like, let me know all the things that I can't do. Because usually if you ask me, what do I want to do? I don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. So that was kind of my approach to pharmacy school. I'd already been working for CVS and it is crazy crazy. It's the most chaotic environment I have ever been in. And I tell people all the time that if I can survive CVS, I can survive anything. Um, But during that time, I was like, okay, well, what can a hospital pharmacist do? So I got the opportunity to work in the hospital system um, at UNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I got the opportunity to um, help pilot a pharmacy consult clinic within the dental schools clinic. And so that was an opportunity to do ambulatory care pharmacy. And then during, oh, and then I also did uh, diabetes and TB research in South Africa um, for a non-governmental organization so an NGO. And so that gave me opportunity to do research. Uh, And so like, there's all these different areas of research, academia, 
community pharmacy, clinical pharmacy. Um, and I then got to do a API rotation, which is during your fourth year clinical rotations um, at BMS, which is Bristol Myers Squibb. And that's a pharmaceutical company. And so that is considered a non-traditional career within the pharmacy um, pathways. And so I'm like, oh, well, I got this opportunity to do it with one of my mentors and it was amazing. So I decided to do a postdoc um, at Eli Lilly and Company in Indianapolis. And so I did my postdoc mm-hmm. in pharmaceutical project management within diabetes and uh, then <laughs> switched over into marketing. And so that also is a very big jump. And uh, you don't see it a lot at the time when I did it, the jump from a pharmacist uh, from a clinical background into a commercial slash business background. And I was the first person in our program to jump (laughs) clinical to marketing. So now that kind of brings me, I was in that role. So I was an associate brand manager for um, U500, one of the um, insulins at Eli Lilly and company. And I had the opportunity. I have a friend who I've known since I was in North Carolina. We've known each other for a decade. Um, His name is Brandon. And he had introduced me to tech a long time ago. We used to go to pitch competitions and um, looked at drones. And I was always fascinated with tech, but couldn't figure out how to combine the tech side of things with the healthcare, which is where my passions were pretty much aligning up to. Um, He reached out to me one day and said, hey, you know, I know I introduced you to one of my friends last year. Her name is Renee. She's phenomenal. I think you should reach out to her um, because she has a position that is like a combination of all the things things that you've done. And I'm like, there's no way I jump to thing, to thing, to thing, just to get the experience to say, oh yeah, I really enjoy this. Or no, I don't really like that. Um, and I've enjoyed most of the things. Uh, <laughs> so I got a chance to meet Renee, who you guys spoke with last time. And, uh, as you can tell, she's phenomenal, amazing human being, a phenomenal person. I absolutely enjoy every bit of working with and for her. Uh, but I got a chance to talk to her and I was like, wow, what she's doing is amazing. And it is a little bit of everything that I currently do. I get to talk to people. I get to talk and see what healthcare is like from like the beginning stages. I get to work in innovation because healthcare and pharma all are generally very slow uh, disciplines. And so, you know, they don't move fast. Things are archaic is the best way to put it in a lot of ways. So seeing innovation for a space that has the opportunity to do so much, um, the marketing side of things, like I get to work with startups and help them get off the ground by putting this really big name, this amazing company, NVIDIA, behind them to, you know, show them support and brand awareness and recognition. Um, Project management, because I do manage over 650 startups in North and Latin America um, within my role. So that's a lot. Uh, It's not quite as many as the 1600 that Renee has globally, but uh, still a lot of startups. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot there. (laughs) That, that but that's is, essentially how I got here. <laughs> wow, that is unbelievable. So I definitely we we have to kind of go into your professional life a bit, but not yeah. to totally derail. But I want to jump back a bit in terms of you. Obviously, it seems like, you know, you have this motto of you don't know what you don't know. Maybe oh, yeah. that goes into ambition, self-starterism. Um, I mean, what... 
what makes you tick, right? Like, is it, do you have, just have a passion for school or do you have, a, <laughs> what is it? Like, what is it? Is it something that happened? Is it innate? You know, I think people were curious to find out individuals like you yeah. who have this outrageous resume across the board. How, like, wh- why? <laughs> or yeah. inter- exactly. Yeah. Why or, or how, or what, what is it that makes you tick like that? I think it's a couple of things, honestly. Um, the first one is probably like my faith and just my faith in God and, and figuring out my purpose, right? I know that I can help make life better for people. It was always a challenge of something that my parents said. It was, you know, leave people better than you found them. Um, and I try to do that in all my interactions. Um, and then the second probably piece of that is really uh, going back to the organization I was with, uh, Project Seed. Um, I recently kind of shared this experience, but a part of the foundation in Project Seed is something that I have memorized and we say it and it's a quote. And if you're affiliated with Project Seed, you will say it. And that's if excellence is possible, then good is not enough. And it's so programmed in me, I think that I just don't think about it. I probably had that drive. I can't think back from down before it because it's so ingrained in me. But, you know, I think that that's a really big piece of it. It's like, oh, if I can achieve excellence, then why would I ever achieve anything less than that? And I'm an Enneagram three. So for those of you who are listening and and curious, I'm definitely an achiever. Please don't (laughs) get it mistaken. I have high two tendencies and um, a helper as well, but definitely a three. So I would say that my biggest drive and passion for, I do actually don't enjoy school in any way, shape or form. My (laughs) parents will tell you that that was probably the biggest thing that I said was like, I hate school. And they didn't believe me until I graduated. But <laughs> that was actually a really big thing. Uh, so yeah, three things is uh, my faith. Uh, second one is the foundation of if excellence is possible, then good is not enough. And then three is like just my passion for helping people and making people's lives better, which yeah. again, this role gives me that opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I kind of want to get into as far as what you just said about um, disliking uh, traditional education. Because oh yeah, I am in the same boat. I am in the <laughs> same boat. So if you if you ask my parents, I was faking um, illness from day one. I mean kindergarten. I'm ta- like I had. I don't know if it was separation eggs. I don't know what it was. But the fact is, is that even I mean from day one of kindergarten through college. I mean my education path has been um, anything but linear uh, to say the <laughs> least. And so I, I I feel you on that one. But I want to know from your perspective, because I'm always curious of asking people because there's, there seems to be this commonality in Mm -hmm. successful people that they didn't fit the mold for what the traditional education system is able to offer. So I want to, I kind of want to pick your brain in terms of uh, what you think is wrong with it. And then how do we improve it? Because I do think that some form of education is necessary to mm-hmm. move through the ranks, if you want to call it, or follow a passion. And mm-hmm. I see that. I mean, I see the the, yeah. the legitimacy of that. Yeah. But how do we, like, as people that dislike school and didn't yeah. fit the mold, how yeah. do we fix that problem? What do you see? Yeah, that's a, just such a great question, question Craig, because 
I mean, if you look at it, I do fit the mold. Like I, I, mm. I, I mean, I graduated high school, I think with almost a 5.0, which mm. it's crazy to sound like to say it now, but it was like, yeah, you know, I was an overachiever in a lot of cases, right. <laughs> um, but I still hated school. I hated right. the traditional um, affiliation of what school was, which was do this mm. task, get this grade. And like, yeah. this is what's going to make you successful in life. What I've learned of what success has looked like for me, at least, is that, you know, a lot of times success is how quickly can you fail? And yeah. that's not the model that's taught in schools. The model that's taught in school is like, you know, follow the rules and then you're going to be successful. But yeah. a lot of times it's like breaking the rules teaches you something. Right. Lessons are learned through failure. Um, a, a book I was reading recently was like, oh, yeah, I challenge my kids every week to like tell me something that they fail. If they tell me something that they're good at, then like, you know, what did I learn? So I think that's another huge aspect of it is that a lot of my education was supplemented by my parents. Um, so our parenting or their parenting outside of the classroom really fueled a lot of my lessons and my learning. And so, you know, family trips, if we took a vacation, I literally just got the um, notification on my time hop app yesterday of I spent my senior spring break break in Savannah, Georgia at, and I'm initially, don't get me wrong. I was mad. Like (laughs) 17, 18 year old Chelsea was not a fan of spending her last spring break of high school in Savannah, Georgia with her parents and her younger brothers. And of course they always, because I'm the only girl, I got a chance to bring my uh, best friend at the time. So she was on the trip with me, but I'm really mad. And then on top of that, my dad woke us up at like 7 a.m. If you know me, I'm not a morning person. I don't care what time of the day it is. Don't talk to me before 9 a.m., like, <laughs> especially not on vacation. So he took us on this vacation. Um, our whole family was on this vacation in Savannah, Georgia, and we go to a church. Again, I love God, but a church at 7 a.m. on a week off. <laughs> yeah, you got to tell me a little bit more about this. We get there and we're the, at the first African-American church in the U.S. And mm. so we start going through this church and you can feel the history in the church. Um, mm. You know, the tour guide is telling us about how people will come, you know, straight visiting here, like visiting the U.S. And will come to this church and can read the markings that are on the pews. And like they have the initial like uh, visitor logs and you can read all the people wow. who've been there. Um, the Underground Railroad runs underneath the entire city of Savannah, Georgia. Mm. And so you can see the holes in the floor where slaves would stand underneath there and breathe, like to have breathing room with people came to look. So there was so much history in it. And as you can see, I get really excited about it because that was yeah. really cool for me. Um, but that's yeah. how my education was supplemented. It was taking yeah. me to things that weren't necessarily something I was going to see in a school room, in a book that someone else had created, but really going into places and having the experiences of seeing that. I mean, we had to write book reports on things that we did and books that we read during the summer or trips that we went on. Like my father wanted to know what did do, what did we learn from those things? So I think education is not only what you can read and listen and hear and take and absorb from your, your traditional methods, but also in the same way I was even taught pharmacy, it's putting people in real environments and giving them exposure. Um, and if we have more of those opportunities, those problem solving and critical thinking skills and being in the real world in safe environments where you have test environments that still have some type of consequence when things go wrong, but you give people the opportunity and the experience to do real things and they can Mm -hmm. see the impact of that to understand how it actually applies. Yeah, that's 
a phenomenal answer to that question. I, and I, I, I'm right there with you. So it's, it is to me, what I got out of education is the supplementary um, education initiatives, right? Whether that's yep. field trips, yep. going places with my parents, uh, you know, learning from my sister. Mm-hmm. And it, there's, there's so many opportunities. And especially now, I think it's such a hot topic too, because of the, of the pandemic that's going on yep. and the fact that kids are experiencing, you know, completely at home school up until recently. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's, and I work a lot with uh, local high schools and, mm-hmm. and elementary middles, but there's one uh, partner high school we have. And, uh, they said that there is a definitive maturity gap that's happened where the people in high school, they haven't had a normal year since they, I think the juniors haven't had a normal year since they were in seventh grade, eighth grade. Wow. And so, and so they look, it's as if you took a middle schooler and dumped them into an upperclassman role. And so there's definitely, I think that this topic actually is going to become more severe as, as, as we see this dynamic shift that's occurred because all out of our control, right? I mean, it's not, it's, this is something that happened, right? And so, but thinking of creative ways in which we can make education Mm -hmm. more effective for people, because Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, if you fitting the traditional mold, making great grades, that's fantastic. You know, I, I experienced the same thing, but if you're disinterested, you think that, you're being, you're basically being forced into this box, um, this box. Right. Yep. And so, yep. and it's kind of funny. I, I was in a elementary school in fifth grade and mm-hmm. all of these uh, paper spinner tops, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were all the rage. And so I decided <laughs> I was, I just created, I created a company. We had this, we had these uh, behavior bucks, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, um, these behavioral bucks were awarded for good behavior, basically. Mm-hmm. And you could buy, I think, 30 of them got you about 30 extra minutes of recess, you know, oh, or, or you, know, nice. you could buy candy or something like that. And we're so, the king of the yard. <laughs> and so I basically, I made this company and started selling it, uh, selling these spinner tops and breaking the school records and everything with our manufacturing process. And I was paying people salaries. I had commissioned <laughs> salespeople in different grades. And this, eventually it all got to a point, the school shut me down. Of course. And, and so, but looking back on that, I'm like, well, what that an amazing, brilliant. yes, right. Brilliant. Like, what an amazing learning opportunity because yeah. I was, I was actively paying people. Mm-hmm. I had commissioned salespeople that were uh, selling the paper, you know, the spinner tops at recess. And uh, my mom actually used to work at the school and yeah. she remembers yeah. they had a, like a board meeting and took a vote on whether or not to shut my company down the only for thing this you fake had, money. I bet you, if you, I bet you, if you paid them in taxes, they would look the other way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think, no, I mean, it's a serious conversation. And I, I think that to how do we innovate upon yeah. the education mold? Because yeah. I think that if there's a way that we can go in and, and have almost like a startup culture inside of our schools where yeah. they can get creative. And what are, what is your passion? I mean, one thing in particular too, that I'm so excited about mm-hmm. is that they changed STEM mm-hmm. to STEAM because I am, I love acting, right? So I love theater. I and didn't I love know technology. That. Yeah. So it's all STEAM programs now because they put I the like arts that. in there. Cause I didn't I like, like that. I'm like looking at I'm like, okay, science, technology, engineering, math, that's great. Yeah. But you're discounting what the arts have done for culture. 
Yeah. And so um, also the fact that people can have both sides of their brain. Like I said, I went from clinical into commercial and marketing is much more a uh, art than it yes. is a science. Yeah, it's complete. It's a creative role. And so I think we're on the mm-hmm. same page here about how our yeah. minds work um, in the sense that like I have to have this creative outlet. I mean, to be honest, yeah. that's why this podcast exists. Right? So, so, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it's it's a must. And I'm so thrilled. I think actually that is a great thing that the education system is doing right yeah. now is changing it from STEM to STEAM. It's such a simple change, but I think the implications of that and and acknowledging the fact that if you are an artist, that's okay too. You know, you don't have, yeah, you don't have to be forced into STEM uh, education, but you just, yeah, you you just reminded me because I actually did spend a good chunk of my childhood um, in the arts. So, you know, I started off in dance, uh, started off in dance at age three, quit dance for karate, but you know, there's that. Um, But then I did end up going back to dance for my church and I did it from the age of eight to 18 or actually after 18. So I did it for a pretty long time, but that was also something that my dad was, um, my parents, my mom and my dad were really big on was exposing us to art, like not just music. So, you know, we did drive cross country from North Carolina to Kansas city and, you know, exploring Motown and, you know, getting that kind of feel. So um, to the drawing aspect of it, I do think that there's, uh, I do like to randomly draw. That is probably a fun fact, but as an adult, I have an adult coloring book as a way to, you know, to just relax and decompress myself. So the science can be so heavy sometimes that you just have to take a step back, give your brain enough of a mental break for it to be able to create and be able to absorb. And I think the arts do a really good job of that. So I, Put it, I definitely am happy to hear that it's changed to STEAM because I do think the two can go hand in hand because innovation comes with creativity and we associate yes. creativity with art. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think with you working with so many startups, um, and of course, Darvis being one of the startups. Yeah. Um, so it's, but that is, that really, in my opinion, seems to be the differentiator between um, successful startups and startups that end up failing is mm-hmm. how creative are you? How mm-hmm. quickly can you pivot? What mm-hmm. ideas are you thinking outside the box? Because if you're thinking inside the box, it's not going to work. Nope. And that's honestly the case, I think, with everything in life. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, you have to be thinking creatively on your feet, willing to make changes and being open to new ideas. Absolutely. Um, and if you, and I think, you know, that's one of the issues I see with the modern education system too, is that they're just not, you introduce a new idea and they shut you down. That's My ninth and 10th grade social studies teacher um, is and shout out to Miss Solomon. My mom still works with her. So I'll definitely <laughs> say, hey, listen, I give you a shout out on the podcast. Um, it's one of the most phenomenal uh, professors and teachers that I had. And it's all because of the way the class was structured. So um, our it's called Padea. I don't know if you're familiar with Padea style instruction. I'm not. No, I'm not familiar. So I'd okay. love an explanation. Yeah. So it, I almost didn't take AP U.S. history because I wanted Padilla style learning. Um, but they pair language arts and social studies together. Um, and I, now I think they do it all the way up to like your, your you know, whatever you're taking your senior year. But um, you're you switch every other day. So um, it depends on the high school, but our high school switched that class every other day. So on one Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would have language arts and the Tuesday, Thursday, I would have social studies. And then the following week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'd have social studies. And then the other Tuesday, Thursday, I would have language arts. So it's on this A, B model. But the point of it is to complement 
the language arts kind of theories and lessons behind literature with how it appropriated over into or uh, transitioned or cultivated over into history. So Mm -hmm. the, you know, the Renaissance, what impact did that have on literature? Um, What did, you know, uh, the colonization of just the rest of the world, how did that translate over into the books that we read? So Mm -hmm. looking at, um, I can think of what's probably a really good example. Um, Why am I drawing a blank? Everyone has to read this book. It's a movie. <laughs> it's That's like set it in Jim sometimes. Crow, but it's like Atticus Finch. What is the name of the book? Oh, oh uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, To Kill yes. a Mockingbird. Yes. Okay, yeah. So there's actually a, a ton of like U.S. history things in To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Um, so, you know, we talked about those things, but you learned the two different types of lessons. So you get the literature aspect from language arts side and you get the social mm-hmm. studies aspects of whether it's world history or civics and economics, right? And we do Padea. And so Padea is either one time it can be an argument. So it can be some half of the class is going to argue for or against a problem or an idea. Mm. And then the other half just has the opposite argument. And so then you have discussion based learning. Oh. And so you do projects and all of the work that you do all heads towards, hey, here's the problem. Now everyone has to share their opinion. So it's very, very opinion based and it fosters discussion for yes. differing opinions. Um, I think that's one of the things that we're getting away from in the current environment. And another reason why the education is so important, because if you don't foster different thoughts of opinion and understand mm-hmm. that the both can coexist, you get what we currently have. You get this lack of ability to be able to hear other people out just because mm-hmm. their thought processes may be different or their worldview may be different. And right. you lack the understanding that you need to under, like to be able to understand that everyone is human. So going back to just kind of the startup point and the innovation working for NVIDIA has been great because we don't just tackle hard problems because if it was hard, then someone else can go solve it. But if we we tackle complex problems that may take people having different points of views that have multiple viewpoints that have multiple different functions that, you know, translate across industries, like why would healthcare need to have uh, the same thought process as autonomous vehicles? Well, there's a lot of overlap that we can learn from each other in there but if we're so closed off then there's no way that you can actually have that overlap and that still that happens in school systems but there's not usually a place or a space for it to happen in a safe enough space because you don't have the educators in place or you know the thought processes in place and and students are scared like that's a scary place to be in that you're telling somebody that you're wrong (laughs) and then having to argue it in front of other people at a young age but I think it definitely transitioned into being able to hear other people out that have different opinions for me and it also gave me a better world view of understanding you know the culture and differences between arts and the you know the more economic side of things absolutely yeah that's that is really really cool and that's i mean honestly too just from the i guess from the confidence boost that comes from the fact that you are willing to disagree and i mean you're are you, are you familiar with the term groupthink um, and it's, um, it's, it's kind of, it's honestly a term they throw around in like business books. It's, okay. it's, it's, <laughs> I was like, probably it's, if I got the, got the gist right, of what it sounds like. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's, it's essentially where like, you don't go out of your way to find mm-hmm. people, people that, that, differ that disagree with yeah. you. 
because yeah, yeah, that yeah. is in, in from <laughs> so from a business standpoint, they call it groupthink because you don't want a board or you don't want a committee mm-hmm. or just even colleagues from like in a in a breakout session to all believe the same thing because mm-hmm. you're all in agreement and you just sit there and say, yeah, that's a great idea. And it, sure, it might be a great idea, but it could be better. It could yeah. you can improve upon anything. And yeah. so and I, I think you're spot on with the fact that we're losing um in the world today, the ability to disagree. And the fact is, is that, I mean, there are yeah, respect, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and, and it's, in my opinion, there are definitely ideas that are wrong and should mm-hmm. be called out. Um, however, if you don't allow them to be called out, then you force them down the same path. They will fall further into their thinking. Yeah. And you, and eventually you're, it's all and, – and honestly, too, I think that ultimately we're, we're looking at a world where social media is dominant, right? And uh, yeah, which is a whole other can of worms. But um, That but goes back into the maturity of the students. <laughs> yes, right. And and so in this social media dominant world, the algorithms are actively playing up yeah. to this. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're going to only show you posts that you're going to agree with. And from a business perspective, why not? Right. Yeah. Because yeah. you want people to enjoy their time in the platform. But the mm-hmm. issue is, is that now we've gone out into the real world with it, where it's not yeah. a hidden thing anymore that you have a social media account. It's why don't you have a social media account now? Right. And so the aggregate or the or the normal person has multiple accounts yeah. and they're in these bubbles basically. And we don't, and we don't know how to interact anymore with each other. I was and just going to say, <laughs> you made me think about it because I was like, oh yeah, the difference between me and kids now is like, oh yeah, I went to school when you couldn't have a phone and it was, <laughs> oh, they're going to bag and tag it. Like your yes. parents has to come get it from you. Meanwhile, the teacher's drawer. <laughs> yeah. See, this was a thing. Getting a cell phone when one of your friends has a cell phone while you still have to use a house phone, which my niece has no idea what a house phone is or what the purpose oh, no. is when you can have a cell phone. She knows, but it's like, dude, you have no idea the struggle of running to get off the bus, calling someone and getting a voicemail. <laughs> but I think that that's a huge thing because, you know, my niece has been able to operate Instagram since she was two. And it's like, you know, they are intuitively better at technology than we will ever be growing up with it the way they are. But it does have such a different psychological. Like, I also joke, oh, I'm from the era where everybody didn't get trophies. Like, you had to be the best to win it. (laughs) It was none of this, oh, participation trophy. No, 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 no. (laughs) You have a winner and a loser. And sometimes, like, that has to be, like, you're not going to win at everything in life. Not everyone's going to include you there are things that are truly separators and we have to learn to acknowledge them like uh i know this is probably a segue but you know being a black woman in the events of the summer of 2020 with george floyd amada aubrey brianna taylor you know when people were like oh yeah but you know i don't see color and it's like well if you don't see color you don't see me Mm -hmm. um and that's like a big Mm -hmm. conversation that i had like with colleagues in the workplace and personally of just explaining that so we have to acknowledge the differences and you know respectfully have those differences understand they all have a place but to your point be able to call it when things are right and wrong because mm-hmm. there are very two 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 very different things of allowing something to happen just because uh, and then allowing something wrong to perpetuate into something that gets bigger and bigger and then you don't know how to control it 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely, so when you said it's probably a segue, which is actually nice because I wanted to bring this up next if you're comfortable with it um, <laughs> yeah, in go. terms of, yeah, in terms of uh, what your story is, because ultimately, you know, we're looking at it from, you know, we're sitting here, we're, we both work in tech and, um, you know, traditionally speaking, it's definitely male dominated. But mm-hmm. then on top of that, I want to learn from your experience as well. You, you said you identify as a, a black female. And so, um, um, what I want to learn from you, and I think the listeners want to learn from you, what that experience is like, why it's so important to have you in the room with these discussions, how much you can add to the conversation, because I think you got, you, you hit an excellent point in the fact that we have to be able to see each other. Yeah. It's actually okay to see that we're, we are different okay. because yeah. we have, we have completely different stories and we have something completely different to take to the table. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to hear each other out, listen, and then come to what well, it's not really a compromise, but come to a mm-hmm. place of a, we can say, here's our differences. Here's our agreements. Let's figure out how to work together and, yeah. uh, and make this pic- picture work. And so yeah. saying all of that, I just, if you, I, I would love to hear from your perspective about what the journey is like for, yeah. for especially black women going into tech, mm-hmm. going through, I mean, going through the education system, even going all the mm-hmm. way from, you know, elementary school to, to having a PhD to having, to being Dr. Yeah. Sumner. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want that needs, that story needs to be told. And if you're comfortable with it, I would love to hear your experience and uh, what that looks like. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit. Um, I'll tell you another story. Um, And this happened when I was headed into undergrad. Um, There was uh, I wanted to join the Student Government Association because it was something I was really big in in high school. So I was quite a nerd, but I also had the opportunity to win um, like homecoming queen and and all that kind of fun stuff. Right. so, but I also wanted to have that same kind of impact in college. I went to a, a very small, predominantly white school in the middle of nowhere. Um, they were very much not used to seeing people that looked like me on campus mm. in addition to that part of the state. Um, so that was a first experience. But I joined the SGA and the um, president from the freshman class at the time we had a great meeting and he's just walking beside me and we're chatting and he goes, Oh, you know, Chelsea, I have a question. You know, I heard that you got one of the endowment scholarships and it's like one of the prestigious scholarships for our school. You got one of the endowment scholarships and um, one of my other friends didn't get it. And the reason that you got it was because you were black. And I remember thinking in that moment, like you have no idea <laughs> the yeah. amount of work, time and effort that it took for me to even end up here. Um, and on paper, I can almost guarantee you in that that I very much qualified uh, and probably overqualified for even the opportunity to be here. Um And that's one of the big things. Um, I don't know if anyone says this, but it's a truth for me, at least in that being a black woman, I know that I have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And that is something that has been ingrained in me with parents who grew up in segregated schools and grew up integrating schools. And 
uh, understanding that while they could be the very best, they're going to get passed over um, for uh, for different opportunities. So it's not just about being able to show up and meet the qualifications, but honestly, it's usually showing up and actually being able to exceed them. Um, that can present itself in a lot of different ways with imposter syndrome in the workplace, yeah. um, not feeling like you belong in spaces that you you belong in. Like I joke that I belong in every room that I walk into and I try to operate in that, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Um, even shifting different gears when there's it's a path that other people haven't taken before. You question a lot of, am I supposed to be here? And how do I not mess this up for someone else to come behind you? Uh, that's like wow. a measurement of success for me is wow. can I make sure that I pave a way for other people to not just come behind me, but to go by, come behind me and exceed the things that I do? And um, do I create opportunities and pathways for uh, the next generation to be able yeah. to succeed because of the work that I'm putting in? So I definitely think being a double minority um, has caused me to look at life a little bit differently than a lot of people. Uh, to your point, though, I do understand the diversity. And so we even bring it back to the startup conversation. We talked about, you know, looking at boards and how diverse are your boards. Um, and traditionally in the AI space, the boards just aren't that diverse. Um, the startups aren't, especially in, in AI and in, in healthcare, are not that diverse. Um, I'm beginning to get really excited to see the number of women CEOs that I'm seeing in startups, and it's growing. Um, but now, how do I get my minority, my Latinx, my Black and African-American, our immigrant families in these positions to be able to lead these companies? Um, and what pathways are, do we set up? It does start with education. It does start with exposure. Yeah. It does go back into those earlier areas that people just don't necessarily deem to be important until they are important. And so I think that that's a big uh, thing that we just don't talk about how much the pathways that have allowed me to end up here um, and the opportunities I stand on the giants of people that came before me it's not a first for uh, it, it may be the first time but that doesn't mean that I'm the first one I'm just the first one that is here now uh, that you're able to see but I guarantee you there was somebody else that was as qualified or overqualified than I was that ended up here um, another story I'll give you is um, something the Lord made uh, um, which is the story of Vivian Thomas and um, who's the first black man to perform an open heart surgery um, mm -hmm. at John Hopkins. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, there is it's stories like that where it's not the first and there's no acknowledgement of it because of what was socially acceptable at the time. Uh, we see now that there's a lot of things that are, are becoming socially acceptable. But, you know, again, my big thing in coming even into this role in tech um, for now, a career that's even more non-traditional than the non-traditional role that I initially took. How do I pave the way for the students and the pharmacists who are coming behind me or coming alongside of me to make sure that we are creating avenues and pathways for people to know that they can also do this, too? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. In in terms of because honestly, as, as far as the the company Darvis that I work for, we're we're about to cross over the fifty one percent mark for fifty one percent women. So, um, it, in terms of from your point of view, I was wondering if you had any sort of um, suggestions, um, help, 
things we should consider, however you want to put it, if there's something yeah. from your perspective that we can do, I mean, because look, I, I'm a white male, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm the photo child of tech. So I, um, <laughs> I, I, so from, but as far as from, from my perspective, um, and, and the others that are, that look like me or similar yeah. to me, what is it that we can do is, I don't know if there's any organizations or if there's some, or if there's, books or really anything that you want to speak on in terms of yeah. how we can help improve the process mm -hmm. so that you are no longer have to be another giant, right? Because we're in yep. this place and we're in this time frame where you, there are giants before you, but you're having to be another giant, right? Which yep. is a, that, and, and you are more than qualified. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just that yep. we shouldn't still be here. Yep. Right. Yeah. And so how, what is it that everyone can do to make sure that the people that come after you are not having the same conversation about having to be the giant in which they could potentially ruin the situation for individuals that are younger than them? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, and I think kind of multiple different ways to think about it, right? One of the things that we again came up in the summer of 2020 was the fact that a lot of times when you are the only black person, the only minority in a room, um, you are now the spokesperson. And mm -hmm. so, um, and on, in addition to that, that, that can be uncomfortable being the only person in the room sometimes, yeah. but we are so used to being uncomfortable that it becomes the normal. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people shy away from uncomfortable situations. So go to the Afrotech conference and meet the people who are there and see what the conversations are like, because it's going to probably going to put you in an uncomfortable space. Yeah. You've got a ton of people who are all identifying as, you know, mostly identifying as black or african-american but they're talking about the same things that you know you would normally be talking about they're just doing it in a space where they're not the minority um so you know I, i'm not sure if there is one for you know the latinx community but go into the places where they feel the most comfortable or we feel the most comfortable um and that you may feel a little bit uncomfortable and start sure. having those conversations i think that's the first thing it's like most people have to learn how to be uncomfortable and yeah. to have difficult conversations while being uncomfortable uncomfortable uh, and also be willing to learn. So I, I encourage all of my mentors. I said, you know, as a black woman, I want you to read this book because if you are going to mentor me, I want you to read um, the memo. It's uh, what women of color need to know to get a seat at the table uh, by Minda Hartz. And it was such a phenomenal book because I read it and could completely relate to it. And it's like, oh, you know, this, this makes perfect sense to me. It may not make sense to you. So I always encourage my mentors and my bosses like, hey, when you finish it, let's have a conversation. And was there something in there, you know, that you want to learn a little bit more about from my perspective? And I can show you these things because as I read it, I recognized that there were going to be there were things that happened to the women who shared their stories in that book that I'm like, I guarantee that this is going to happen to me one day. How can you prepare me for one to handle this situation? And then how do you advocate for me if you see that this situation? happens. And so I think that's a big key thing. And being the first is that you don't necessarily know how to navigate these situations. So other people sharing their stories and sharing their testimonies then allow for, you know, the allies, allies in the room to be able to say, hey, 
tell me a little bit more about the situation or now I can see something or the microaggressions that happen in these rooms and in these spaces um, to be able to speak up and call them out and to address them. Because again, being the only person in the room uh, sometimes means like, oh, I'm going to be the giant that has to face, or I'm going to be the David mm. that has to face the Goliath. And I don't have any support. So I just am not going to say anything and just let it happen because there needs to be more people that will back me up in order to say mm. something. So I think the biggest thing is also, again, kind of educating and getting uncomfortable. But then the second part is speaking up because a lot of people will just be like, oh, after a meeting or a sending a text message, like I know that this probably didn't feel that great, but being the one that speaks up to acknowledge it in the moment means, hey, you don't have to fight this battle alone. And that's a lot of times where we feel it's like, hey, um, and that goes for both yeah. men, like men as allies, as well as minority allies as well. So it's not just one spectrum, but how do you just advocate for other people that may not share your same background? Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's fantastic advice. And that's something that I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out how they can best support and they mm -hmm. don't um, and they do it from a genuine place mm -hmm. and make sure that they are, um, you know, not over imposing because at the end of the day, too, it's 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 your story to tell right mm -hmm. and so for from my perspective you know i don't want to put words in your mouth or or act like i have some deep understanding of yeah. of the problem and the situation so i think for a lot of the listeners um that are listening in right now uh very much appreciate the advice because i think people are really looking for um voices to hear that can help them figure out how can they approach this and actually be a net positive mm -hmm. versus trying to be a net positive and they end up yeah. coming in and completely just screwing up the situation right yeah, yeah. so no yeah. I, I really appreciate you being willing to willing to speak on that absolutely um, yeah i think a lot of people are um, hungry to hear how they can help and how they can be an ally like you were saying yeah um, in terms of going to a different topic, something that you stated a little bit earlier, yeah. talking about how you're from an era of uh, where there is a winner <laughs> and loser. There's a there's a first place that you have to work hard. Right. I mean, obviously, you're very, very driven. So yeah. you have to be competitive. And yeah. I'm trying to figure out if there's anything that you're doing right now to channel that competitive energy, whether it's athletics or if maybe, I don't know, debate team or something, whatever <laughs> it is that you're doing. Like, I'm just is there anything that you see that can like really because I think a a lot of people have that that same energy and they want mm -hmm. to experience that that uh, sense of competition. I'm just trying to figure out if there's anything that you're doing right now to uh, channel that. <laughs> yeah, no, great question. And uh, so before the pandemic or literally like right before the pandemic started, I made a promise to myself to really take care of my like physical health because uh, um, it's tied to my mental health and like working all the time and at such a young age is not, you know, not healthy at all. Uh, so I got a trainer when I moved to Indianapolis and mm. he's phenomenal. Uh, he has been training me, uh, personal training with me for the last two years. Um, it's called wow. Panthera Elite. So if you're ever in Indianapolis, you know, come visit us. Uh, we do some really cool things. Uh, but the biggest thing is he used to work for the USA um, track and field. And oh I ran my first half marathon two years ago on a wow. whim, literally <laughs> on a whim. And I started training and it got cold and I stopped training. And he's like, yeah, you're going to run it on Memorial Day. So 
I ran my first hit half marathon under on Memorial Day in under three hours. And then once I did it, I was like, I'm never running again. And then last <laughs> year I convinced five of my friends, uh, three to run it with me, but then two no. bike alongside us. And so we did it again. And because I've been training so consistently, I actually did my time in under, like in like 10 minutes less than what I did last year or the first year that I ran it. And so I was like, wow, that's crazy. What consistency can do? Cause I definitely didn't train at all last year. Um, <laughs> and so this year I'm training again. I have a goal in mind to do my half. Uh, it's sometime in the next couple of weeks. I had to do it, run it between May 7th and May 16th, uh, wow. the indie mini um, and under in two hours and 30 minutes and, or under. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to make Whoa. it. <laughs> <laughs> because oh that is an average of 11 minute mile for 13.1 miles. Um, but my workouts have been, I'm sore right now as I'm talking, um, have been much more plyometric based. And I've even seen the speed up in, even though I haven't run like I'm supposed to, but uh, I'm even seeing the increase or decrease in my mileage time. And so uh, stay tuned because that's how I've been channeling my energy. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. That is amazing. I Did you see the guy i think oh my gosh i'm forgetting his name but he just he i, I believe he won the boston marathon oh, and did okay. you see his time on the 22nd mile he ran this mile in four minutes and 27 seconds it's an average of like 13.1 miles per hour for the full mile and that's the 22nd mile and so i'm you know I, I love running like i'm trying to be a marathon runner myself and um oh actively gosh. failing at it i really messed up my left <laughs> leg so i music city marathon in nashville's coming up and i am just doing the 10k so <laughs> I, super disappointed but there's uh, always another one but um but yeah i look at that and how is that even possible there are some of my one laps my two hundred meters that are four minutes <laughs> it is just like that's crazy that is and that's yeah someone like i said someone broke it down to what speed that is to even remotely accomplish that is oh thir- over there it's like just just north of 13 miles per hour for the full mile on average and that is the that he did that for the twenty second mile, which means that he was pretty much done, and uh, That's so and crazy. he beat everybody by like I might this might be hyperbolic, but he beat everybody by like an hour. <laughs> he, yeah, I was gonna say he had to beat everybody by everyone. an hour. That's crazy. <laughs> and I'm just like. Oh my god! I like. I wish. Could you imagine what that feels like? Just like no, because I'm like that's three miles. He can run a five k in the amount of times that I can do one. It's just. I mean, that is, is. Yeah, that's just on another level. I'm trying to get like listens, that. Kid. Yeah, I was like, what does he listen to when he runs? Because like, I don't know about you, but I have to have like a like a good music that motivates yes. me. Because yes. unlike you, I I am not motivated to run at all. <laughs> I just I'm competitive enough that I just I'm doing it (laughs) I definitely get the runners high like I can Ah. I definitely feel that um and I I just there's something about it but I've got to have music too I can't there's (laughs) If, if I'm if I'm if I'm not running with like a group, um, we can have like small talk while we're doing it. Yeah. I I have to have music, and I yeah. usually it's a hip hop playlist, it's a rap playlist. Yeah. I put it in. I just yeah. I have a good that, beat. Yes, that beat carries me. <laughs> it really does. So <laughs> I got a, another random question for you now. That we're oh, talking yeah. about this, yeah. but uh, are you? Do you breathe through your nose, or do you breathe through your mouth when you run? <laughs> oh gosh, I try my very best to go intake through the nose out the mouth i tr- like i actively try to be honest like 10 miles in i have no idea <laughs> 
I was just oh, like, listen, I'm on like another planet. <laughs> so. Three miles in, I'm, I have no idea. But I, I had asked because I read a book that was really interesting called Breath by, I think it's by Jim Nestor. Don't quote me on that, but really phenomenal book. But it also told me how bad I was like running because I was breathing through my mouth when I couldn't oh. breathe. But yeah, it's just a fun So what, what's it called? Breath? Just yeah. breath? Yeah, just okay. breath. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, how to run. Is that right? Kind of. No, how to, oh. it is actually. It's actually not. <laughs> but it, I did. It was one of the sidebars of me <laughs> reading the book. <laughs> also, fun fact: I've slept with a piece of tape on my mouth to make sure that I'm not breathing oh. out of my mouth at night. So there are random things that you may end up doing after reading this book but uh and those are just two of them <laughs> uh but it's a book about the importance of breathing and how yeah. humanity is actually going in reverse because we don't chew enough so our mm. mouths mouths are too small to be able to handle the intake and how oh. our nasal cavities are kind of closing in on themselves no matter like who you are and like what background you come from like we just have had these really small nasal cavities leading to higher allergies um, more sleep apnea and like all these chronic diseases that come from literally just breathing in and out of your nose. And so phenomenal book, just a random <laughs> sidebar here because we were talking about breathing and it's one of the things that I'm like very cognizant of now. I still yeah. suck at it, but I've gotten a lot better just because I'm yeah. like, I don't, don't want to have these issues. <laughs> right. No, that's true. I mean, you see all the time. I mean, especially honestly in the, in the male population, it seems like the average has sleep apnea. Yeah. And um, every dad on the planet, I think, has, has a sleep apnea yeah, machine. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I just, Earplugs. I'm <laughs> extremely, extremely fearful of that. So I will be, I, I might even get on Amazon right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really. But I, 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 need, I, need, I, need, I need to read this book. No, actually, you know what? I'm going to go to a local bookstore. That's actually, I'm not going to get it. That's we, we need to support our local bookstores. We do. I read an article this weekend about Barnes and Noble and how it was hated by indie bookstores for so long. But now it's like, if Barnes and Noble doesn't make it, then there is like literally no way to get print books because everybody just goes to Amazon. So yes, exactly. a plug for your local bookstore. Yeah. Let, let the, I don't know, let, you know, buy lettuce or something at convenience <laughs> like buy your books out like go go experience the world i don't you know what i mean like i, I don't oh, i don't yeah. know maybe maybe there's maybe there's a problem with the lettuce market maybe uh, it's not lettuce no, but, no, no. there's but, a problem with a lot of markets and supply chains currently you that's, know? that's very that's very true that's very true i guess but anything I, but but i will say that i am an advocate for like trying things so like i do a self-care day again another side here uh, yeah. i do a self-care day i at least try to do one once a quarter where i disconnect from social media for from like as much as possible from work, email, like sometimes I'll even turn my phone off just yeah. to get away. Um, and since I'm not from the Midwest, I've been trying to explore the Midwest a little bit more. So for instance, I nice. went to Cincinnati um, and spent a day at a bed and breakfast. So I didn't even do a chain, um, you know, hotel, but I spent a night in a bed and breakfast and then um, went to local shops, like women owned, minority owned shops and just like explored the city from that viewpoint. So it gives you a really cool opportunity to one, just step away from the chaos and the yeah. bustle of like American life. Cause that's another reason I like love to travel because it gets me out of the, everything has to be done right now. And the yeah. chaos of 
oh, I have to check this email. I've got to be online. I've got to do this. But to just really get it around and walking, um, breathing in fresh air um, and then getting a chance to talk to local business owners. They mm-hmm. give you such great perspective of, hey, you should check this out. Or what are you looking for? Um, you know, I, I stopped in this odds and ends shop and just like the most random of things. But it was so cool. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of your local your mom and pop shops. Yeah. And we honestly, we have to be right. Because like, really, when you talk about community culture, those are the drivers of it. I mean, and a lot of times too, the guys, like the people that own these local shops have been there a long time. Yep. Like, they are the community. And so mm-hmm. when we come into these places, especially because like being, being in Nashville, I'm born and raised in Nashville, which mm-hmm. is quite rare these days. <laughs> but, uh, but, but uh, you know, I see as we have this influx of people, which is great. Like I'm actually one, I'm all for the growth. I'm like, come on, bring it on, you know? Bring like, it I, on. Yeah. It's, it's great opportunity, but at Don't the end of the, the day, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And so, so, but I just, we have to support the local business owners because these guys have been here forever and it's just mm-hmm. crazy to see things that I shopped at as a kid that are just closing down Gone. left and right. Yeah. And it is just wild. And a lot of this, because I mean, even like when you talk about, and actually, honestly, going back to one of the conversations we had, um, you know, they started a, a Black Opry here because mm. there's not there's not a lot of visibility in terms of uh, how influential uh, mm. Black people have been to the country music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, spoiler alert, it is uh, a huge, like a major influencer. You a don't have to look that. Just, yeah. I mean, definitely look it up and definitely learn. I'm just saying like before you even, oh, I wonder what it is. It's, it's huge. So I, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much any music genre that's come out of the South is, but, but uh, all that being said, I, I, it's, you, you see a lot of these places where like, whether it's the black Opry or looking at um, traditional, whether it's bars or music venues mm-hmm. and they're closing down and I'm like, Oh my God, like people are moving to Nashville for that culture. Mm-hmm. And inadvertently we're all participating in ruining the culture. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, it's not like I'm going to solve the world's problems on this podcast. I just, it's, it's, um, it's something that I have to be cognizant of because yeah. it's that the change is palpable. Yeah. And I mean, I'm like 100% I'm a problem and I'm yeah. definitely a problem Agreed. in progress because I, I live in a condo that's brand new. That's on <laughs> that's downtown. <laughs> right. And so like, yeah. I'm definitely the, the hated one, but I, yeah. I just, you know, that's, that's something that's such a good point to make is that local business, they go out. I just want to advocate people should go out and experience the city in which they're moving to. Because yeah. even though, like you're saying, the Midwest flyover country, yep. um, uh, actually my, my girlfriend's family's from Iowa of mm. all places. And, uh, What's there? Yeah, Corn. Exa- exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's usually the but, joke. but it's just, it's just that there's so like, you know, I, uh, you, you go into like Des Moines, for example, mm-hmm. it's really cool, really, really cool city. And really? uh, yeah, like it's got like know. this really cool bar and a lot of like movie shoots have happened at it. And it's mm. it's like sponsored by Miller High Life of all beers. <laughs> and so it's like this 1970s uh, living room that is yeah. all Miller High Life. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But I just all that being said, it doesn't matter where you're at. There is something to be seen. And I think that a lot of times we get so stuck in the fact that there's so much to do now. We're all so busy, which is definitely valid. Yeah. But you have to take time to go out and experience things. Like even if it's stop getting your groceries delivered, go out <laughs> to the store and get the groceries, you know, go to the farmer's market, right? Go like, to the farmer's market. Do something. Like, I don't know, market. just get, yeah. get out of the house and like go, go and experience the city. 
Yeah. There's so much to see. You can even use TikTok. Like uh, we're going to Chicago for my best friend's bachelorette next weekend. And as much as I'm like, yeah, don't use social media to always like be the thing that it's a good way to actually find ways to get out. So it's like on the one hand, use the technology to be able to do things that you couldn't do previously. Like we don't have to use white pages or yellow pages to go find businesses anymore. But, you know, what are the ways that we can use the technology, but then still be present in the moment to explore the city because while you can find a you know a cool bar restaurant on tiktok then explore the ones that are around it like there's usually a reason that it's there or you know it's in a community that has you know some cool story or background and get to know people like this is part of the things that we lack right now is the ability to recognize that we have neighbors and like to love your neighbor no matter what background they're from so yeah i'm definitely agreeing with you on that yeah, absolutely. And I know we're running low on time. So I've got uh, just one more topic that I really want to hit. <laughs> and it's actually what's funny is you you always uh, innately segue into what I'm talking <laughs> about. But uh, you talked about how there is a there is an intersection of technology into, into everyday life that is yeah. beneficial. And I'm, yeah. of, I mean, I, I work in the industry, so yeah. obviously I agree. Um, but but with that being said, um, with your background in the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical industry, industry, with the fact that you're working with healthcare startups um, and you're supporting, you say 650, right? Yeah, over 650. Yeah. yeah, So uh, all of these startups, how do you, how do you see artificial intelligence and technological innovation benefiting the industries that have been, that that are basically as old as time, right? I mean, people have always taken care of, you know, there have always been, there's always been a professional taking care of somebody in a facility. So with a, with an industry like healthcare, how do you see what technologies and what advancements do you see that are going to directly impact this industry, the healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical industry for the better? Yeah. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, we can look at the last two years. Um, you know, the traditional time to market for a drug is usually seven to 10 years. Wow. We got COVID vaccines on the market in less than a year, almost yeah. less than half of a year. Right. Um, so I would say that it's just beginning to how technology is going to impact healthcare. And part of the reason that I even switched over um, and knowing that was like technology is going to disrupt how we look at healthcare today. But the other side of it is it gives us the opportunity to give healthcare to everyone. Like we think about having healthcare in the US as, oh, well, you know, I had to wait on my doctor for 20 minutes and, you know, I only talked to them for five. Um, Going to South Africa, during like during pharmacy school for me and sitting in a clinic where they literally got there at 4 a.m. to wait outside in a line where the clinic opened at seven and still may not have had an opportunity to see a nurse and they can't take off work with that one day. We absolutely have privileges that other people from a healthcare standpoint do not have. Yeah. Um, I work with a lot of, or I've seen a lot of startups that are even working with like, you know, most women here in the US have children in a hospital. Our mortality rate, and don't get me started on maternal mortality rate in the US, is still almost equivalent to countries where most of the birthing happens at home. But what wow. we don't talk about is the birthing that happens in rural areas areas where it can take two or three hours to get to a hospital and the newborns that are lost in the process to that because they just don't have the access to healthcare. Um, and technology has the opportunity to take, you know, uh, 
ultrasounds to mothers in their houses um, without it being some high tech thing where, you know, you have to be a some type of physician in order to operate the device. But regular everyday people being able to use devices or applications or, you know, whatever it may be to then get the service and care that they need. Uh, Telehealth, especially, it was growing like slowly before the pandemic. But now it's like, if I can just talk to my physician uh, over a computer because I actually don't really need to go in, or if you are a little bit more advanced from a medical standpoint and can actually identify like, hey, here's my problem. Here's what normally happens. Here's this. And they don't have to spend all their time with you. Mm -hmm. Um, It gives the generalists who are, you know, physicians, whether it's physicians or nurse practitioners, the opportunity to not be burdened. Nurses right now are burned out. Hospital systems are burned out. How do we then tell, you know, the fourth grader who wants to be a nurse? Oh, yeah, go do this. And, you know, you'll be tired after working for a year like that doesn't create a long lasting you know, impact. But what does is, hey, you want to help people. Let me show you how technology can augment the work that you're going to do, the care that you can give, how you can help people. Um, So I think that's the biggest thing about healthcare. It is archaic, but ultimately the goal at the end of the day is to make life better for people around the world. Um, to make life better for every patient that you get or interact interact with. And I know for all the healthcare providers and professionals that listen to this, you know that you make an oath. Like that is part of your degree is, hey, I'm going to make an oath to make a person's life better, a patient's life better. Because at the end of the day, we all bleed red. And that's my like motto. It's the thing that I think about the most is, you know, at the end of the day, we all bleed red. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background, um, your race, your religion, whatever it may be. Um, and technology doesn't look at that either. It can, it does have the ability to, uh, and we can use that for good as well to identify, you know, those populations and underserved markets and, and those type of things. And, and so that can be a good thing, but you also can apply that into these areas to make life better for everyone and not just a subset. And I think we have the ability to do that with technology. And while healthcare moves very slowly and technology moves very quickly, um, there can be a compromise and a meeting of the middle with startups, with large companies coming to the table to learn what's being done here and how we can implement these and the policies that are being around it. Like we're writing policy for AI in healthcare as it's going on. So, you know, we're flying the plane and reading the manual at the same time. So it, it's it's going to be a journey, but we got to be willing to, again, like I said earlier, uh, fail fast and fail quickly so that we can learn the best solutions and build it in yeah. place because people's lives are depending on it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, those are fantastic points. And um, looking at it from, from a perspective of when you're talking about burnout, um, I read an article the other day that basically like, I think it's by 2070, like 75% of the healthcare workforce is going to be gone uh, because they are so burned out. So we've got to figure out something. And I think that a lot of these uh, AI innovations are really going to uh, help out in that regard. It's going to, you know, it has that if that statistic is true and that, you know, and uh, you know, it's not like I've done an extensive amount of research on it, but yeah. if, it, if it stands to be true, we're in trouble. So we have to innovate now as the plane is flying. We have to be reading that manual uh, to make sure that we are creating the best products possible because we definitely don't want to um, 
we don't want to go back. We we want to continue to make progress and make sure people are mm-hmm. healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, not even, and I wish I had this specific year on me, but I mean, even yeah. what a couple hundred years ago, the, the common cold was a, was like a death sentence. Right. Death and sentence. so yeah. you look at, and then you look at today with the COVID pandemic. I mean, realistically, yeah. if healthcare innovation occurs as it has been, and now we are actually seeing the fruits of the labor with the vaccine mm-hmm. and with some of the innovations and some of the uh, vitamins and things that you can take. Mm-hmm. Ultimately it's, we're, we're seeing how it's, it's playing out in front of our eyes, but yeah. eventually in the future, they're going to look back and think COVID-19 pandemic. And now, Oh, Oh, it's nothing but a but a common cold, right? And yeah. so, and it's that's oversimplifying the problem. I just it's yeah. it's interesting to see how we are constantly innovating on health, yep. and if we we can't stop because yep. ultimately we might not have the workforce in which we yep. have today. Yeah, and I even give you another perspective. Um, you know, yeah. last year, so working at Eli Lilly and Company was mm-hmm. um, the hundredth year for the development, the commercialization of insulin. So you know, uh, over not even over a hundred years ago, but having type one diabetes was a death sentence. Wow. Starvation was the only way, and, and most people didn't live to be, you know, didn't live to old age because they've been starving their bodies because your body doesn't produce insulin. Um, so you can't eat anything because everything you're body turns it into you know you can't process it but um wow you know the commercialization of insulin was this huge landmark but i think about it from this standpoint what have we done since then uh to transform type 1 diabetes care other than continually updating insulins but Mm. i'm thinking you know the way i look at healthcare of the future and the way that technology can really do that is how do we then you know segment someone's genome to know hey this this patient may not have you know a well-working pancreas how do we give them medication that either reverses this um, so that they can actually produce it on their own or you know be able to say hey you're going to need to take this type of insulin for specifically for your body type that's not going to cause you to gain weight. That's not going to cause you to drop your blood sugar really, really low. Um, You know, how do we get to that level of precision medicine? And like, that's where I know healthcare is headed and we're already doing a lot of these things. I work with a lot of startups uh, on the future of precision medicine, especially for oncology, um, which is, you know, the most elusive thing in the pharmaceutical industry right now is, you know, how do we treat this thing that, you know, another phenomenal book uh, is the uh, emperor of all maladies on like the history of cancer. Um, But anyways, you know, just how do we change? Like we look back a hundred years, not just COVID-19, but the next disease that's coming. How do we prepare for that now Mm. and uh, prepare our societies for that so that the least of us and the best of us don't all like have to come to a standstill, but we can all appropriately get to the best versions of health that we can. Absolutely. Well, I think that is uh, some fantastic food for thought. So I think this might be a great place to pause, but, uh, Dr. Sumner, you're going to have to come back on. That's for sure. This is, we could go on for hours, I think. So there, hours. Has, to, there has to be a part two if you're willing. So, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I so appreciate your time and uh, I've learned so much from you today. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward, I look forward to it again soon. It was an honor, Craig. Thank you. And anytime. Thanks so much. We'll <laughs>